Hi and welcome to the Liminalist podcast with Liv and Lauren. Today we're going to talk about um, the connection between emotional development and personal development with the dating scene. So I'll just start by asking Liv some questions. So how has your you know, personal work, um, whether that's through therapy or you know, work that you've done on your own, how has that influenced your dating experiences and your relationships so far? Well... The reason I started dating is partly to do with the fact that at the beginning of last year I committed to working through emotional patterns in like not ignoring emotional patterns Mm. and I sort of separated from individuated from my parents and that freed up space to consider dating and then I saw a relationship coach online and they told me that I needed to work on self-acceptance so that was handy but to be honest that's like not obvious what the next steps are Mm. (laughs) work on self-acceptance you know Mm. where do you go from there yeah yeah I mean I know that for me like there's definitely quite a strong interconnection between my personal healing or development work and you know my dating or relationship experiences um like I do find for me like um getting therapy is important whether that's actually with a qualified therapist or whether that's you know self-therapy work on my own or Um, in other contexts, like in a group, you know, I I do feel like it has a pretty big impact because I think, you know, particularly learning about attachment styles has a big impact on my experience of dating and understanding how people interact in the dating scene. But, you know, it's not just, just that. I mean, when you come to, you know, any new relationship or any new person, you bring all of your you know, emotional baggage with you and you're seeing them through the lens of that to a large degree. But I guess part of therapy and part of that work is actually learning, you know, learning how to see people and take people more as they are rather than seeing them through the lens of trauma or through the lens of baggage or past relationship experiences, you know, being able to see people with fresh eyes um, and, and to start anew rather than, you know, bringing the past into it. Mm. I think it's it can be hard to find a therapist that you feel safe enough just speaking in your native thought language to. And mm. so I think probably talking with you has been, for the most part, more helpful than mm. my forays into therapy land. Mm. Yeah, I do find for me talking to my friends makes a big difference. And I think part of the advantage of talking to friends is that you could talk to a wide range of people with a wide range of different experiences and points of view. Like some of my friends are much older and married with kids or some of them are straight, some of them are gay, some are bi, some are monogamous, some are polyamorous. And I find that getting a wide range of points of view does help to keep me balanced and helps me to see a bit outside my own limited perspective. And I do think therapy is part of that, but I feel that therapy, you know, it's it's not everything. It's just one part of that, you know, that community that we talked about recently, the importance of having that community and getting perspectives from other people. Um, not only to protect us from people who are not good for us, but also for us to become more self-aware and to think about how we're treating other people, you know, Mm -hmm. whether we're behaving in ways that are ethical and respectful and honouring of others too, you know, Um, to be able to see our own blind spots I think is pretty important. And I know that often my friends have been able to point out my blind spots and sometimes even people you know, that I meet on dating sites or apps have been able to actually point out things that maybe I wasn't fully aware of or fully conscious of. And that feedback, when it's done tactfully and kindly, can actually be really useful. Yeah, I think having therapy or friends is important as a pressure release because Mm. I must say I have probably shared too much 
too early with some people that I've gone on dates with or even just talking before <laughs> before even meeting one person I probably shared too much too soon and you know at the best of times dating can be a pressure pressurizing experience so it's important to have therapy or friends as a pressure release. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I also do highly value other people who are in therapy or who have done therapy in the past. And while it's not really a guarantee of anything, like people can be in therapy and still be unable to have healthy, stable relationships and they still may not treat people, other people well, I do think it's a good sign. It's, I guess I would consider it to be a green flag if someone is either actively in therapy or has mm. has done it in the past and I'm curious do you do you feel that way is that something you look for like people who have been in therapy well I haven't thought about it as such but the people I've been most interested in as people know about how they've delved into their own psychology mm. and mm, whether that's through therapy, not necessarily, but forms of therapy like self-therapy or self-care and they've analysed themselves to some extent and probably done a bit of reading, either a bit of reading, bit of work, not sure how much therapy, but that level of... Mm, that capacity to analyze themselves I think is important I mean I can't say if I need that in a relationship but in terms of me being interested in them as a person and you know hooking me in I think that is a common factor yeah, I mean, I do highly value self-awareness or self-insight. And while on its own, that, you know, that's not always enough for people to be able to change or heal, it's a very important starting point. It's a really good baseline. And if people can't even reach that baseline, you know, it's it can be very hard to feel like you're really on equal footing um, in terms of emotional and mental development. Um, and it can feel a little bit like you end up being that person's mentor or their therapist or teaching mm -hmm. them things. And, you know, while that's okay on occasion, I think if that's an ongoing dynamic and there's a significant gap that can pull people apart. Yeah, I would like to be able to do that mutually, mm. like helping each other, but... Yeah, I do want to be helped myself in hmm. a relationship if they're a healthy person with hmm. the, that level of knowledge and empathy and understanding. Hmm. But I also want to be able to help them. Yeah. And, well, the thing is, I think that can be hard, leaving that achieving that level of mutuality as well because if we if we have things that we've had to work through mm. and we've attained this knowledge in order to work through those things sometimes we want to be needed and we we we're not used to mutuality so it can be hard to achieve mutuality, even when two people have achieved a degree of knowledge because of their having to understand their experiences. So having a parity of knowledge or level of self-understanding is one thing, but achieving mutuality in how you how you're prepared to be helped and help, especially to be helped, I mm. think. Um, the prepared, at least for me, because I'm anxious avoidant and probably attracted to people who are a little more avoidant than me, we both um, 
it's it's scary to be vulnerable and to need. Yeah. That's the... It's like if I get together, if I got together with an avoidant, it's like two ends of a... Two negative ends of two magnets trying mm. to push them together. It might be a bit difficult. Unless we're both willing to give... If we're both willing to receive mm. and be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge. I think this, like, and I do think this this can present issues along gendered lines, but I do think these issues can be present in same-sex partnerships that, you know, that levels of emotional development or healing or personal growth, a lot of people aren't going to be in exactly the same place. I mean, you can find a level of, you can kind of be roughly on the same page, but you know, people move and grow at different paces in their lives. And sometimes that pace, the the differences can be really, really vast. And I guess one thing I've had to accept is that there's some people who would never reach where I'm at in this lifetime. And that's not to be arrogant. It's just where they're at. And maybe, maybe they don't feel interested in that. Maybe they don't want to, and maybe they never will. And, you know, I have to disrespect their journey and what they're capable of and accept that, you know, I think I think part of the problem as women is we do often get into relationships hoping people will change. Well, at least I've been prone to this, hoping that and th- maybe thinking that through our influence that, you know, people can somehow develop or improve or learn more about themselves. And that may be the case, but the problem is that if we're the one teaching them all the time, then they'll never really fully catch up to us as an equal in a way, like there'll always be a few steps behind. And I do think there's a dynamic with men and women or heterosexual relationships where it's almost expected that the woman will be more emotionally intelligent or do more of that emotional work and will kind of train the man or teach the man. Um, But I think a lot of women do, they might be okay with that initially, but I think often they do get sick of that long term. And I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of couples actually start growing apart. Mm. So it's just something I'm mindful of that, you know, when you start off in a relationship, you might only be in a slightly different space, but over time those differences Mm. can become more and more pronounced. Mm. And I think that sometimes, and then sometimes it can feel there's a huge gulf between you because you're growing in different directions or to different degrees. So, yeah, it's not an easy issue because I do think that most women tend to be a lot more willing to go to therapy, a lot more willing to read self-help books, a lot more interested in things like spirituality. And a lot of men are conditioned and taught that that's not really socially acceptable. It's not a masculine thing to do. So it's not just that they are not pushed towards it. They're actually pushed away from that fairly actively in a lot of ways and shamed for, you know, being vulnerable and for doing things that are feminine, particularly if they're heterosexual. So I do think this can be a pretty significant problem, um, I find, with the straight dating scene and with male-female relationships. And that's not to say there aren't men doing the work. There are, and I've come across them. But I would say compared to women, they do seem to be a minority. Mm. I mean, has that been your experience, Liv? I think it's more more feeling I'm more attracted to men who they could be feeling types mm. on Myers Briggs. Like yeah. they're pretty ambidextrous in mm. thinking and feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean I think I've been quite drawn to to men who maybe have a strong emotional side or maybe androgynous both in terms of their presentation like aesthetically but also personality wise I think as a bisexual person I do find that quite attractive and more appealing but I think part of the reason it's appealing is also because there's the hope that maybe they they won't feel ashamed of those things that society considers feminine like you know like working on their emotional intelligence and their emotional vocabulary. Yeah. And for me, it's important that 
I'm not going to be typecast in like because just because I don't fit a model of femininity that I'm not like discounted as a woman or mm. so for me I'm more I think I am attracted to strong male a strong male presence mm. Mm. but also a presence that is not intimidated by my strength yeah that's quite important and that they're willing to um, delve into those places that like emotional in an emotional area that may be scary but they're not overwhelmed yeah hmm yeah hmm so to have that respect towards me but also that fortitude within themselves yeah mm. yeah I think that is important that you know whoever whether you're dating the same sex or the opposite sex that you know that they that they can respect you and not feel intimidated or somehow mm. threatened by your strengths yeah and the willingness to be vulnerable and take risks and not be overwhelmed and find strength in that process of being vulnerable and taking risks, that's very important to me. Because that's the way that I, intuitively, I think about love like you take risks of being vulnerable. And so it's important for me to see that in someone else. But I've, I'm finding that I'm in some sense um I've become more I think I've put a bit of a break on my tendency to overexert myself and do all this emotional labor for other people and I've put some breaks on that because I want to meet someone halfway and it's sort of like if I don't get the sign of someone else being on the same page then you know why just hurt myself spinning my wheels mm. yeah I definitely think one thing I've noticed is sometimes in male female interactions it can feel as if the woman is actually expected or assumed to do a good 75 to 80 percent of the emotional or conversational labor and that can even come down to simple things like even just being the one to ask questions or keep the conversation going and kind of make smooth things over when things get awkward like a lot of men don't do that I don't know sometimes they notice sometimes they don't but it kind of feels that in society we've decided it's the woman's role to kind of smooth over interactions and keep them harmonious yeah, which is so disturbing mm. in different situations. It's so disturbing. Mm. Yeah, I find that problematic. So I do think one thing I've had to learn is, yeah, to step back a little sometimes with the amount of emotional labour I'm doing and to let the other person, yeah, come to me and meet me halfway. And sometimes that means things fall down, you know, and that can be hard, but... I feel like sometimes you have to let that happen and also let those awkward moments happen so that you can really see whether the person will at least, mm. you know, do put in 50%. And I'm not saying, like, some couples do enjoy a dynamic where one person does most of the talking or most of the question asking, and that's fine, but I think if you want a more mutual, equal dynamic, you know, the way that you interact from the start can really set the pace for that and set the stage for... With how mutual and how equal it's going to be. Yeah, I don't know how to set the tone because different people give dating advice to women like some say lean back, some say don't lean back, lean in. Mm. And, <laughs> and so in terms of setting the tone, like how can you set the tone for something organically 
and test for these things like how willing someone is to come halfway because like if I just in the past I've tried to reset the tone because I thought mm. I'd gone way overboard and so then I think I'm just being confusing so I don't know how how can you establish a level of comfort with another person when you don't know them <laughs> and you don't like when you're I guess maybe I'm bringing too much of a testing mindset and that brings in a heaviness which kind of stops anything from starting mm. I find that like with texting someone on an app that is a pretty unnatural situation so I tend to give people a bit of leeway in the initial texting phase and maybe even on the first, I usually do a video call before meeting in person. I might give people a little bit of leeway, but I'll still be paying attention to how mutual the conversation is, whether they're asking questions and how engaged they are mm. um, and how much they contribute. And, you know, I understand, I try to be a little bit understanding because people get shy and they get tongue-tied, especially when they're attracted to someone, uh-huh. you know, and sometimes people can really fumble on a first date and they can, you know. So if people seem really nervous or shy or socially anxious, I do try to give them a little bit of leeway. And also coming from, you know, a neurodiverse perspective, I understand that people's, you know, conversational skills sometimes can need a bit of work, you know, or sometimes they may not speak the way that neurotypicals do. They might have their own unique way of conversing. So I just try to take that into account. But I don't want to give people so much leeway that I'm always doing an excessive amount of emotional or mental labour to keep that connection going. So I think in the very early stages, I do tend to give people more of the benefit of the doubt. But I think if you've been on, you know, one to three dates in person, you know, I think you start to get a bit of an idea of how the person is and, you know, how things are going to continue, if that makes sense. Hmm. But, you know, it's it's something that takes time to unfold. And I think one thing I've learned and one thing I've learned repeatedly is that the only way you can really know someone is by observing them carefully in different situations over a long period of time. There's really no substitute for that because people can put on a really good front initially and some people can really be very charismatic or they can even engage in love bombing or fast forwarding type behavior and there's some people you know there's no other way to test or to really know their true character except yeah by time you know an observation and seeing to to see what they're really like and to see what they're like under stress to see what they're like when you say no to them to see how they deal with conflict um so yeah I think that's one of the hard things is that we want to know all the information up front to be able to make a decision, but there's a lot of things that only unfold or become clear over a reasonable length of time. Mm, well, I guess because I'm part avoidant, as you say, that kind of comes with relationship OCD. Mm. And I think that's coming out like I'm thinking it's not worth dating and, well... I feel bad because having bad experiences, I guess I attribute that to myself, like I shouldn't be dating or something. Mm. I think it is easy to personalise negative experiences and that's something over time I've had to learn not to do because I think of it this way, nearly every woman, straight woman or bisexual woman who goes on a dating site or dating apps, they're going to get inappropriate sexual messages. And in a lot of apps, that also includes things like dick pics or even low-level harassment often. And most women do get that. And I think when I, when you realise that, you realise, well, if pretty, pretty much every woman deals with that to one degree or another. I, and I think mm. it helps me to realise that I'm not... I, I don't think most of the time I don't think most of the time women are doing anything to attract or invite that kind of attention and it's important that we don't blame the victim and I think in the same way I think 
you know, all kinds of people are on dating apps and there are some pretty problematic people. Some are predatory and some are just kind of garden variety jerks. But, you know, both men, both male and female, it's not just men. I mean, you get all types um, on dating apps. So it's it's a bit of a jungle out there. And I think one thing I've had to learn is that it doesn't say anything about my value as a person, like just because I might attract some toxic or you know, some pretty rude or difficult or problematic people, that that in no way diminishes my value or my worth or says anything about me. It's it's not actually, yeah, it's not a reflection on me. Mm. It's like I feel overly res- emotionally responsible mm. for just interacting with people you know, if I'm not that interested, I feel bad if I'm not direct about mm. it. But I think it's also more... I'm trying to take care of them by not being direct, in a sense. Mm. Yeah, and I notice I do that too. Like, I think this is something we women are conditioned to do is to try and take care of people too much. You know, we try and really take care of people's emotions and think about what makes them feel comfortable all the time, not what, not what makes us feel good or comfortable. Like yeah. we're very much taught from day dot to really think about other people's comfort levels. And if we're a sensitive person, that tends to be even more intensified, that feeling of like almost like a duty or an obligation to make other people feel safe and comfortable and good about themselves. But we often do that at the expense of our own comfort and our own needs. Mm. So I do think this imbalance, particularly between men and women and how that comes out in dating, is problematic. I feel that the imbalance is not as extreme between um, people of the same sex. But Mm. still, there can be imbalances in the amount of mental and emotional labor people are willing to do, even in, you know, gay or lesbian couples. And I still think it pays to be aware of that because I think sometimes it's easy to assume that, oh, well, we're both women, so you know, we'll both be on the same page or we'll both feel the same way. But it's often not the case, you know. And um, and just because women on average are more likely to go to therapy or more likely to have a good emotional vocabulary um, doesn't always mean that they are able to engage in healthy relationships. It doesn't always mean that just because people can talk a good talk doesn't mean they can walk the walk, so to speak, you know. Um And I think women can definitely often talk about these things much more articulately, but whether they can put them into practice is often a whole other kettle of fish. So that's definitely a complication, whereas I think with men, um, a lot of them haven't done that work. So, you know, it's, it's harder to be fooled, I suppose, you know, because a lot of men aren't able to talk the talk, you know, or use that kind of, um, emotional language or vocabulary in a yeah. way um, so yeah but one thing that I've thought about back to the question of therapy is like I think one thing that's probably fairly important to me it's not easy to bring up early on but it is pretty important for me to know that someone is willing to go to therapy as an individual but one thing that's another thing that's important to me is that they would be willing to go to couples therapy And I think one of the things that happens is that a lot of people only consider things like that when things are really falling apart in a relationship. Whereas I would like to set a good foundation, you know, by starting out, you know, talking about really important topics and, you know, at times bringing a third party in to get a more objective point of view. Hmm. I think that's one thing, just, you know, for all their flaws, you know, one thing that actually churches do actually do quite well is that often they will encourage couples to get pastoral counseling or therapy with a marriage therapist before before they get engaged and married and they often actually do like it's a kind of a standard thing like they do 10 sessions together to kind of evaluate their compatibility to get another perspective Mm. and make sure that you know they're on the same page especially about things like really big things like kids and lifestyle and you know, um, values and beliefs. And I think having a, obviously it's not a guarantee. Like a lot of people still go through this couple's therapy and they can Mm. still end up in problematic or even abusive relationships. But 
I still think the more screening processes you have, the more likely it is you'll pick up if there's a problem or a significant mm. incompatibility that, you know, when you're in love and infatuated, it's just easy to overlook that stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I think that it's important to be able to take an interest in one another's psychology. Yeah. But also have a capacity to love unconditionally, like mm. love the other person and not to be able to care enough to see the other person's mind and hmm. how they work, but not hold any of those things against the other person because, hmm. you know, people with, you know, maybe dark triad trays narcissism or sociopathy they'll try and find out those things about your psychology mm. but in a perhaps hidden way and use those against you yeah whereas you know for me I, I take an interest in other people's psychology but it's in a way that sort of it's like I don't Many could experience that as it being in, me being invasive and mm. a kind of intrusion. Yeah. But I don't – I'm not interested in it in a non-consensual way. Like mm. I – like for me it's without judgment. I don't feel judgment towards other people. It's more like rejoicing over them without judgment, compassion, and not using it against them, but, like, you know, I want them to have the same attitude towards me to take that interest, be able to see or care enough to see how my psychology works and also help me. Hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that's something important to me. Like, when I when people open up to me, I admit that in the very early stages, I don't approach people with judgment. I would say that I do try to approach with discernment to see if people share things that may not be a good fit for me, you know. And it might be as simple as just revealing they really want kids or something, which is not a bad thing inherently. It just may not be a good fit for me. Mm. But, you know, I, I do try to use discernment. I find that because I am empathetic and compassionate, people do open up quite quickly and I tend to open up to people quite quickly too, so they tend to respond in kind. And I do know that people can use that against me, but I find that it does tend to reveal people's motives fairly quickly a lot of the time in that if people feel safe enough, they will often open up pretty fast, even about, you know, even about their flaws or their struggles, and that, that can actually mm. be quite helpful to discern, you know, is this yeah. a suitable relationship and even if it's not suitable, I still try to always treat people with love and respect and, mm. and compassion. Yeah. You know, I may not be right for them as a partner, mm. but I can still honour their experience and yeah. listen with empathy as much as I can. I do find that it is tricky because sometimes people do try to take advantage of that or they see that kindness as a weakness or something to exploit. And I've had to become a lot more mindful of that because... I think when you're a fairly open-hearted person, you know, and you're sensitive and compassionate, you do tend to think that you kind of automatically project your own motives onto other people and you think that other people are like you. And I think one thing that a lot of us learn the hard way is that actually most people are not really the mm -hmm. same as us. They're not really, um, they don't have the same level of compassion and non-judgment and understanding and they they sometimes will use it against you. And that's a hard lesson. But I think I've definitely come to a point where I have better boundaries, I have better discernment, um, and I've learned that I can empathise, but I don't necessarily need to give up my boundaries and I don't necessarily mm. need to feel obligated to, to do or be anything to, to people, you know, if I don't want to and if I don't feel like it's a good fit, whether that's as a friend or a partner or anything mm. else. You know, I think... 
I think it's definitely a challenging line to learn to have really strong compassion and empathy with really strong boundaries. Yeah. But I think I'm definitely learning how mm. to do that. And I think that's a bit of a superpower, really, once you can master it. Yeah. Well, what about managing how we come across and then, like, what people that draws in? Because, you know, you said to me once, I come across a bit clueless, but I'm not that vulnerable or something like that. Like, I'm not... Or I come across unaware, but I'm mm. I'm not I'm not as vulnerable as I come across. So it might draw in people, and then and then I seem to have to. Well, in the past, I've had to. I've tried to like rehabilitate my image so I don't come across like as vulnerable mm. because I don't like being. I don't like that reflected image back to me and I know it's not Mm. all that I am and I want to know that that's not what is attractive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think think that's a pretty important point. But I think that's particularly a big problem related to being an autistic or neurodiverse or even autism-adjacent woman, even if you're not diagnosed. Just having a few traits can, unfortunately, it can kind of put a bit of a target on your back for more predatory people. I mean, that's even true of having physical disabilities and illnesses too. It can feel like you've got a target on your back that people, you know, predatory people think you're vulnerable or isolated or, you know, they might think you're clueless um, and so they try to exploit that. Mm. And, you know, I think I think for that reason, sometimes we have to be extra guarded. But I do think you're right in that I can be open but sometimes people perceive that openness is more more naivety. yeah naivety and more naive than or, or vulnerable than I perceive it to be. Like I may be open, but if those things are things I've already largely processed, to me it doesn't feel quite as vulnerable if it's something I've already worked through within myself. What do you mean? You've worked through your openness. I mean more in terms of like if I share something I've struggled with, like a difficult experience in my life, often when I share it with someone, like especially if it's someone I don't know well, I often share it because I've already done a lot of processing and work mm. on that in my own time, both yeah. both on my own and also with other mm. people, like with a therapist and with my friends. So from my perspective, a lot of that is quite, you know, well handled and resolved. But the other person might see it as, oh, this person, you know, yeah, this person's a bit naive or they, they kind of might see it as a bit confronting or they might not really fully understand that actually this is something I've already done a lot of work on and actually thought a lot about that, um, you know, I'm not asking them to be my therapist necessarily yeah. and that's not the motive behind it. I'm more sharing it because... I'm trying to relate to them. I'm trying to be relatable or trying to open up a conversation where people can talk more deeply and more openly about themselves and where people can be authentic. I guess that's a really important value to me is being authentic, but I think that can come across as sometimes too intense or kind of oversharing. And I guess I've had to learn a bit more about how to, yeah, how to find that right balance between really wanting that authenticity and also enjoying a certain amount of emotional intensity in my connections and having good boundaries and, um, yeah, not not necessarily trying to avoid conveying a sense of weakness that would attract the wrong kinds of people, which is a pretty hard balance to strike. Yeah. Like, And I haven't always got it right, but I think I just try to hold those things in tension and just be conscious of them. Mm. A lot of dating seems to me to be very driven by the unconscious. Yeah. And, well, you know, if you're trying to learn how to be your own best friend better, it, you know, for us, for me, it involves speaking up about my boundaries. But if I'm you know, talking to someone, they might 
and they're not sort of conscious of their own the overlays that they're putting on to situations unconsciously or reactively they might perceive my speaking up as demands or me being controlling and mm. they might feel resentful like oh you know a controlling woman she's like mm. making all the demands sort of thing yeah, I definitely feel like there's a lot of gender stereotypes that get put on women that are very negative, like, you know, women who are nagging or too needy or this, that or the other. And I think that <laughs> particularly in a heterosexual dating dynamic, I think that can really hold us women back from being empowered and being assertive and speaking up for what we want and need and being okay, even in some situations, yeah. to take the lead a little bit. Uh-huh. I think that a lot of those gender stereotypes are really aimed at silencing women and really yeah. keeping women down. And mm. I think that's where we have to question those stereotypes or those labels that get put on women, you know. Like there's just so many labels, like so many insults that are actually kind of female-oriented. Um, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, I think there's also a lot of gender dynamics where you know, for example, women feel afraid to ask, you know, what are we doing? Can we define the relationship? Because they're worried about being seen as the stereotypical needy woman. Whereas I feel like the good thing about same-sex dating is you don't have this dynamic of, oh, you're the stereotypical needy man or woman. You know what I mean? Like that gender dynamic is not there. You might still have anxious avoidant problems. Like if you have one anxious person and one avoidant, you can still get that kind of pursuer sort of and distance a dynamic but it doesn't have the overlay of all the cultural baggage of gender stereotypes Mm. that tends to kind of intensify or kind of exacerbate those issues I think one of my issues is that like I'm attracted to you know a strong male presence but then my own attachment behavior might seem more male so Mm. it doesn't really get off the ground because again it's like the two two batteries with a negative or positive sign trying to put them together the polarity sort of doesn't exist to get things ignited or moving to start with yeah I think particularly for avoidant women it can be hard because they're stereotyped as being the male in the relationship but it can go the other way where men with anxious attachment styles are often seen as unmanly or kind of effeminate and it's kind of seen as weakness and seen in a very negative light. And also anxiously attached men, I think because they're ashamed of it, sometimes they express their anxious attachment in more violent or controlling ways. Like they can often, instead of being vulnerable and saying, I want reassurance, instead mm. they might become controlling and say, I don't want you hanging around with your male friends or something right. like that. So it can be expressed in sometimes more yeah, more problematic ways. Mm. And I think that's another reason why anx- men with anxious attachment style do get stigmatized because they get they they can actually come across a lot more forcefully and can seem pushy or you know demanding whereas I think with women it's kind of I guess also women are socialised to be much more aware and considerate of other people's boundaries, you know. So I think women are less likely to be extremely pushy or demanding unless they have other mental health issues going on. Whereas for men it's almost more normal. Like I think a lot of men expect that they just do what they want and women have to set the boundaries. And I think this is a very common dynamic also in male-female friendships where it's kind of acceptable for men to push the boundaries and then women have to be the ones who set the limits. Mm. And I think that that feels unequal and unbalanced. Yeah. And probably frustrating for men too. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And maybe, like, I do recognise that this dynamic benefits men, you know, that in a way they just kind of throw their weight around and women are the ones who have to confront them or set limits or put boundaries in place. But I do think, you know, I do also think a lot of men aren't taught about boundaries and a lot of men I don't think realise they're even allowed to have boundaries. Like if a woman wants sex, some men aren't sure how to say no because they think, well, don't 
aren't we taught that men always want sex? Like, are we allowed to say no? And some men don't feel like they can. Right. So, are you saying they will feel, like, shame in not having sex if they could? Yeah, I do think there's kind of a shame or an expectation that, like, men will always be up for sex or, or even that men always want, you know, romantic or sexual attention from women. And so I think men aren't really taught how to have boundaries and to tune into themselves. And I think, yeah, like there's definitely an expectation that men should just try and, you know, hook up with as many women as they can. And then if they don't, they often get ridiculed or even if it's not external, actual ridicule, there still can be an internal sense that gets ingrained that, they're not a real man, like, if they're not acting that way. So are men taught to value themselves according to attention from women? I do think largely that's the case. But I think it's also about the way other men treat them. Like, I think masculinity itself is a very... That's why they say masculinity is fragile because it's kind of a construct that is based on whether they can prove themselves manly enough. It's it's not really an inherent... It's, it's almost seen as something you have to do or achieve or prove rather than something that you just are, no matter how you behave or no matter what you do. It's kind yeah. of like... It's kind of like, I think, as a woman, just we're a woman because we identify as women because, you know, it's a way of being almost, and it's not... I don't feel like there's as much of a sense we have... We do have to perform womanhood to a degree. Like, there definitely are gendered expectations on women, but there's more of a sense that women can just be who they are rather than having to somehow prove themselves the way that men have to kind of... It's almost seen like men have to prove their manhood by being man enough or masculine Mm. enough. And if they're not, it's almost like they lose their man card or that they're not a real man anymore Mm. by society's standards. And I think... That makes it hard because there's actually kind of almost a pressure on men to behave in these problematic ways, They're like disrespect boundaries. Otherwise, often like women and men are like, oh, aren't you a real man, you know? If they don't disrespect boundaries. Like if they're not pushing women for sex, you know. Like I know a lot of men who are, you know, maybe more demisexual, who don't want to have sex right away, they find that women sometimes are confused or think they're gay because the man is trying to take things slowly and be very respectful and women sometimes actually don't like that because they feel like oh maybe he doesn't desire me or yeah maybe he's gay or there's something wrong with him because he's not pushing me like all these other men do yeah so there can be almost like a standard or an expectation that creates an atmosphere where men feel like they have to behave that way almost oh right And I'm not saying that excuses it. I'm not saying that excuses non-consensual harassment or disrespectful behaviour. And I'm not saying that makes it okay. I think people do need to take ownership Mm. and do need to work on that. And I guess that's where this, you know, this emotional work, like doing the work, you know, going to therapy, doing the self-therapy, whatever it is, reading the books, um, going to groups, whatever that looks like for people. It doesn't always have to look the same for every person. But I think, Doing that work is so important so that people... Mm. Uh, and, yeah, I, I do think particularly in heterosexual relationships, in some ways it becomes even more essential because it's not just the baggage of our personal lives, mm. like our personal histories and our traumas. It's actually the baggage of thousands of years of history and conditioning that we're carrying into our relationships. And, yes, that does affect same-sex relationships, but in a very different way. It's much more equal. So, yeah, did you have anything else to share or anything else that was on your mind about this topic, Liv? Mm, Not really, but it is interesting, the idea of having to prove. Mm. I think for myself with dating, I've sort of been trying to prove to myself that I'm not... I'm not a child (laughs) Hmm. and that yeah that I'm not defined by feeling like maybe I missed some 
steps in my teenage years. Mm, but I guess I was trying to prove something to myself. And maybe it's just like dating fatigue, but I, I'm sort of like the unprocessed emotions don't go away sometimes through trying to prove ourself to ourself. We're actually almost distracting from the unprocessed emotions. So now I've sort of taken some steps back or put a break on dating a bit. Mm, I'm still left with those emotions that I have yet to process, you know? Mm. So dating is not a a substitute for working through the things you need to work through. Yeah, and I think like it's easy for a lot of us, and we've probably all done it to some degree unconsciously, is looking to dating or looking to romantic relationships to fill a void or to meet a need or to affirm us in some way, to make us feel worthy, to feel attractive or desirable. And I think one thing I've had to learn is ultimately that comes from me loving myself and knowing that I'm inherently attractive and desirable and, yeah, having that sense of healthy personal pride regardless of how people treat me because, you know, the way people treat you, particularly on dating apps, can be very, you know, hot and cold, you know, and it's not consistent. But I want my sense of self to be consistent and that, you know, that can't, if I'm relying on that, you know, validation or confirmation from other people, I'll never really, I'll never really be stable. I'll never really have that stable sense of self-worth. So it's definitely something I've had to work on is to really value and love myself no matter what, like no matter how people treat me, no matter how people respond to me, no matter what kinds of people I attract, to know that that doesn't change my worth or my value or how great I am in any way. Mm. It doesn't diminish that. Um, and that's where I think doing the work as much as we can. And I'm not saying we have to be like fully healed or fully arrived or have it all, all our stuff together before dating because no one really is there fully. We're all on a journey. But the more work we can do on ourselves and the more healing we can do beforehand, I think the better because it's, a, it's, it's challenging and it's going to probably trigger us and bring out our insecurities. And you need to have a lot of resilience I think in the dating scene because yeah it's just a it's it's a rough place you know and it it can get to anyone you know Mm. so yeah I guess probably conclude on that note um and finish off there but yeah I think for me you know personal development therapy have a huge impact on my dating and romantic relationships and I feel that yeah but I feel it's something that's ongoing that will continue to impact my relationships throughout my life. And I want that to be a journey of growing with people, whether it's growing with my friends or growing with any people I date. I want that to be an ongoing journey. It's not something where you just arrive and then you're finished and then you move on. Mm. So, yeah. All right, thanks for listening today and um, I look forward to next week's episode. Have a good day.